0: They were in that upper room, but they didn't stay in the upper room all evening long. They had no knowledge of it in the moment, that that would have been their last meal that they celebrated together with their closest friend in Jesus. As we take a moment to remember the cross, we're going to take a moment to remember those last 24 hours of Jesus' physical life on this earth. As I remember the cross, here's what wells up inside of me. I hate this day, but I love this day. It's amazing that something so ugly started in a place so beautiful. It was following that upper room experience that Jesus went with his closest friends, 11 of his disciples, because one was mysteriously missing. Nobody really knew where Judas went, but eventually all the disciples, they they went to this garden. It was a garden called Gethsemane. And it was there that Jesus left eight of his disciples at the front entrance of the gate of the, the garden, and he took his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, and they went to the interior of the garden. He gave them just one simple command. He says, guys, would you simply watch and pray? Little do they know how crucial Jesus command was that particular evening. It's then said about him that, that Jesus went a stone's throw away from his three closest friends. Now, we don't really know how far a stone's throw is. Maybe it depends on how big the rock is and how big your muscle is, but but most likely here's what that means is that Jesus was possibly not within earshot of his closest friends, but they could certainly see what he was doing. And what they recount of what Jesus did is that Jesus pulls the stone's throw away from him and he goes into the interior all by himself. And it says that he got down on his knees, he eventually got down on his face, completely prostrate to the ground, and he begins to cry out to God, God, if it's possible, take this cup from me. It's a powerful prayer because the cup that he's referring to is the cup of God's wrath. He's basically saying, God, is there another way? Is there another way that we can redeem humanity? Is there another way that we can draw them back to a relationship with themselves? Is there any other way than the way of the cross? And he's not just saying, God, I don't want to endure the physical pain. What Jesus knows is he's about to take on the sins of humanity. He's about to endure the very wrath of God. He says, God, is it possible Is there any other way? Can you take this cup from me? Jesus eventually gets up from that prayer and he goes back to his three closest friends and he he finds them sleeping. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? That the, the God of the universe is about to die and yet his closest friends are sleeping through it. Well, he wakes them up and he says, guys, would you please just simply watch and pray? The issue wasn't settled yet in Jesus' heart, and so he goes back, he takes the same position in the same place, praying the same prayer, God, if it's possible, would you take this cup from me? You almost get the sense that our eternities are held in the balance while Jesus weighs the decision of the cross. Just so you know, there was no moral imperative that said he had to go. At any moment, if Jesus wanted to walk away, Jesus had every right to do so. But he prays that prayer, God, if it's possible, would you take it away? Jesus prayed the prayer not once, not twice, but three times. Luke records a fascinating detail the third time Jesus prayed this prayer. It says that Jesus was so overwhelmed that he was sweating like great drops of blood. Uh, some medical experts would, would conclude what Jesus was suffering from is a condition called hemotydrosis. There's only a couple of known cases in all of human history. What happens is somebody gets so stressed, they, they, they get so overwhelmed that literally the blood vessels in their face burst open. It mixes with their sweat. They literally are sweating like great drops of blood. Jesus is sad to the point of death. But nevertheless, this time he finishes the prayer and he says, God, it's not my will, it's your will be done. Jesus surrenders himself to the mission of the cross, and from this moment, he doesn't look back. Just so we're all on the same page, nobody takes Jesus' life from him. He is willingly giving it up. He's willingly laying it down. But he gets back up that third time, and he goes back to his disciples, who who he finds sleeping again. He wakes them up, and as they're wiping the sleepy out of their eyes, they can see in the distance. It's this string of torches. It had to have been a half mile long. Some 500 soldiers are making their way into the garden. Nobody really wouldn't know what to do. Nobody knew what to really think about it. And then they see the person who's leading them. It is one of their own, their closest friend, a guy by the name of Judas. He had walked with Judas. Jesus for three years, and he's leading this army into the garden to arrest Jesus. Just so we're all on the same page, don't anybody think that Jesus was a sissy? They brought over 500 soldiers to arrest him that day. But nobody really knew what to say when when the encounter happened, so Jesus is the first one to speak. He says, who is it that you're looking for? (laughs) There was no response. And so Jesus speaks again. He says, I'm the one you're looking for. Let these men go. It's so like Jesus that even in his most critical hour, he's still looking after the well being of others more than he is himself. It was at this moment that Judas came and he kissed Jesus on the cheek. It was a prearranged signal so that everybody would know exactly who to arrest. It was at that moment that the betrayal was, was solidified that Judas had sold out his friend, his master, his Lord, for 30 pieces of silver. Incidentally, it was the price of a slave. The soldiers then surround Jesus, they take some sort of rope, they bind his hands behind him. It was at that moment that Peter, he was a little bit of a hothead, he he pulls out this sword. It was most likely a butcher knife that they had just used at the Passover meal, and he just takes a swipe at the first person that he could see. It was a guy by the name of Malchus who tries to dodge the sword and he almost got away, but the sword grazed his head and it took his ear off. And his ear kind of falls in the ground. Jesus bound simply says, This, would you permit me this? And they untie Jesus' hands, he picks up the ear, dusts it off, pops it back on the guy's head. I mean, what a moment! And you kind of think in the moment it was this raw display of the supernatural power in Jesus. Now just out of curiosity, how would you like to be a Roman, or how would you like to be one of those soldiers who's now going to bind Jesus after you watched him do something so supernaturally powerful? I wouldn't want to do it. Have you ever wondered why Peter didn't get in trouble for such a thing? Well, Jesus kind of destroyed the evidence. The truth is, Peter was no coward. He just didn't understand yet what it meant to fight without a sword. The truth is, I hate this day. After the garden... Those soldiers took Jesus to a series of what you might call the Jewish trials. He was led in kind of the temple courts, eventually got led to the presence of this guy by the name of Annas. Uh, Annas was a very influential guy when it came to the Jewish religious political system. Uh, he was not the high priest at the time, but he was the former high priest, and he had all kinds of influence. And he'd been waiting for this moment to get into the presence of Jesus to begin to, to get him, uh, to, to basically convict him of a crime that he didn't commit. And in this moment, Annas didn't know exactly what to say, but eventually starts a series of questioning. And he says to Jesus, what is it that you teach? Jesus' response is pretty simple. He says, I've always taught in the open, in the synagogues, in the temple courts, if you want to know what I teach, you can ask anybody what I teach. It's at this moment that this big bruiser just comes and smacks Jesus, which was illegal, by the way. But they didn't really seem to care. It was the first of a series of probably more than a dozen illegalities in these Jewish trials. I mean, there are all kinds of illegal things that they were doing because they were just bent on this mission of trying to convict Jesus for a crime that he didn't commit. I mean, for example, here are some of the illegal things that they were doing. By Jewish law, you could not arrest a prisoner on a bribe. You couldn't arrest somebody at night. You couldn't conduct a trial at night, nor could you conduct a trial during a feast season, and this was Passover. You, you, couldn't, uh, you, you couldn't intimidate a prisoner. You, you couldn't try to get a prisoner to incriminate themselves. Just so you understand, this was no trial. This was a this was a travesty of justice, and it was into this that Jesus simply asked the question, "What is it that I've done?" It's a question that still goes answered, unanswered today. But after uh, after Annas continues a little bit of his questioning, eventually Jesus was brought into the presence of the guy by the name of Caiaphas. Caiaphas happened to be the son-in-law of Annas. He was the current high priest. He was the most powerful person within the Jewish religious system, and and it was really his job to make sure that this conviction was solidified. And so he begins to bring all kinds of false witnesses of Jesus. The first witness comes in and says, hey, I'll tell you what Jesus did. He said he was going to destroy the temple and raise it up again in three days. Well, Jesus did actually say this but the temple that he was referring to was not the building the structure that was the center of their worship the temple he's referring to was his own body the truth is they were about to destroy that temple but God would raise it up again in three days Caiaphas knew that this charge really wasn't going to get anywhere and so he brought a few other false witnesses in but the challenge is he couldn't get their testimony to agree and so. Caiaphas eventually decided that he was going to go for the jugular himself. He was going to go for the charge of blasphemy, which was punishable by death when it came to the Jewish law. What blasphemy was, was basically if anybody claimed to be God, it would be a blasphemous type of claim. And so what Caiaphas asked Jesus is very clear, very cut and dry. He says, are you the Christ? It's really the first good question that Jesus was asked all day. But Jesus was in a little bit of a pickle. If he says no, he would obviously be lying. If he says yes, they would never believe him. They would charge him with blasphemy. It would ultimately seal his fate. But when Jesus was asked the question, are you the Christ? He didn't just stop there. He responded with two powerful words. He simply said, I am Drawing on the very name of God himself, the name that God had given to Moses through that burning bush where he says, I am that I am. When Jesus was asked, are you the Christ? He claimed the very name of God himself. Caiaphas goes crazy. I mean, he starts running around, screaming, tearing his clothes. It was a riot. You should have been there. As far as Caiaphas was concerned, we've got him on the charge of blasphemy. All Caiaphas now has to do is get the rubber stamp of approval of a group that's called the Sanhedrin. It kind of functioned a little bit like Congress. It was, a, it was a governmental ruling body, and so he quickly called the Sanhedrin together. It was almost like he'd already prepped them. It was in the middle of the night. How were all these people available? But nevertheless, the Sanhedrin convenes, and it didn't take long before, as you can imagine, they side with Caiaphas, and they sentenced Jesus to die. But they had a problem they actually didn't have the power to execute anybody you see though though they were the highest ranking people within the Jewish religious system the Jewish people at the time they weren't a free p- people they were still subservient to the Roman Empire who had conquered their land some time before And if you know anything about Rome Rome did not allow their conquered nations to execute their own prisoners Rome reserved that right for themselves Rome said that you can only execute a prisoner if it's some sort of temple violation, and this was no temple violation. So though they had charged Jesus, though they had rubber-stamped the charge, they could do nothing without the approval of the Romans. And so Jesus was then escorted to the presence of this Roman governor, a guy by the name of Pilate. The truth is, I hate this day. Eventually, Jesus gets to the palace of this guy by the name of Pilate. It's in the middle of the night. Pilate's off, obviously sleeping, and so in order to buy a little time, there were some Roman soldiers that decided they'd play a little game with Jesus. It's a little game that maybe somebody might call Pop the Prophet. Basically what it would look like is this. It was a one-sided MMA match. And what would happen is these Roman soldiers would blindfold the victim, and then they would just slug him. They would take the blindfold off and they would say, okay, you prophet, which one of us did it? Oh, you don't know, do you? Well, in our great mercy to you, we'll give you another opportunity. And they would blindfold him and beat him again and again. And so the words of Isaiah were fulfilled where it says that he would be beaten beyond recognition, with eyes swollen. Nose bloodied, lips cracked, Jesus was escorted into the presence of the Roman governor, Pilate. Pilate looks at Jesus and says, what has he done? That's when a high-ranking Jewish religious official says, well, if he wouldn't have done anything, we would have never brought him to you. Knowing that that wasn't really going to work, they decided they tried to bring a charge that the Romans might care about. And so somebody piped up and said, "Well, well, this man refuses to pay taxes to Caesar. It's a ludicrous charge. It was literally three days before in a very public and open area, Jesus had taught the phrase, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. It was a ludicrous, bogus, unfounded charge and Pilate knew it. They knew they didn't have a lot of ground to stand on, and so they begin to try to bring other accusations, but again, they couldn't get the testimony to agree. And so Pilate says, enough's enough. I'll question him myself. And so Pilate takes Jesus back to a more private position in his palace, and he, he just asks him a very pointed question, something that Rome would have cared a lot about, and he simply says, are you a king? That's a big deal in the Roman world because nobody rivals the authority and the power of Caesar. And so once again, Jesus is in a little bit of a pickle. If he says no, he'd be lying, but if he says yes, he might be in a position that he could be punished by a charge that could be placed on his life from Rome. But to the question, are you a king? Jesus responds in this way, I am a king. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate thought, oh, nuts. I mean, I thought I had him, but, but really, I find no fault in this man. Pilate, after a series of questions and after quite a bit of time, he, he found no fault with him. He found Jesus to be a completely innocent man. And so he eventually takes Jesus out on this balcony where this whole crowd of people had convened. Again, we're in the middle of the night, but this whole crowd of people convened to see what would be the fate of this one named Jesus. And and Pilate brings Jesus out and basically says, he's an innocent man. What what would you like me to do with this man? And and, and the the crowds responded, crucify him. Pilate's like, he's innocent. He's done nothing wrong. Pilate tried no less than ten times to release the person of Jesus. There was even one attempt where he says, uh, each feast season during Passover, we're known for releasing one of your criminals back to you as a free person. There was a guy by the name of Barabbas, who's a notorious criminal. And so Pilate says, who would you like me to release? Do you want me to release Barabbas, or do you want me to release Jesus? They said, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. Pilate thought, you know, what do I do with that? That's when somebody from the crowd says, if you don't crucify him, you're no friend of Caesar. That was the trump card. You see, Pilate's political career was actually in jeopardy because the person that had put him in power was removed from power because of some mishandling of some things, and so now everybody that he had put into power was under very close watch. Pilate knew that his job was at risk. And so in order to save his own measly political career that wouldn't last longer than about two more years, Pilate sells out the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I can't be too hard on him. I've sold Jesus out for less. But Pilate takes Jesus back into the palace, and that's when somebody says, you know, this this all started when we were in Galilee. And for Pilate, he thought, oh, that's my out. Because Pilate doesn't have jurisdiction in the region of Galilee. That's that's under the jurisdiction of King Herod. This is a win-win for Pilate. One, he gets Jesus off his hands. And two, Herod has always wanted to see Jesus. And if he can get Jesus into Herod's presence, maybe that earns Pilate a few chips and puts Pilate in some pretty good political graces. And so Pilate sends Jesus off to the presence of King Herod. Herod was a wicked guy. His title was literally King of the Jews. When Jesus gets into his presence, Herod's not interested in questioning Jesus. He'd heard that Jesus was a miracle worker. He wanted Jesus to do something cool. He wanted a a show, a little bit of entertainment. He's like, come on, prophet, do something cool for me. Put on a magic show for me. Jesus wasn't having it. Jesus not only wouldn't do a miracle, Jesus refused to speak to Herod. Here you have the Roman king, who was king of the Jews, meeting Jesus, who was the true king of the Jews, and Jesus refused to speak to him. He's the only person in all of Scripture that Jesus refused to speak to. Well, Herod had had enough. And so he just put a purple robe on Jesus, put a crown of thorns on his head just to mock him as some sort of king and sends him back to Pilate. Well, the sun is beginning to break into the morning and as Jesus begins to walk back to the palace where where Pilate was at, he sees Jesus walking in his way and he thinks to himself, what a nightmare. Speaking of nightmares, Pilate's wife had one last night. The challenge in the ancient world is, dreams were not just simple dreams. They, they fully believed that the gods were communicating things through these dreams. And so now Jesus was not just a political problem for Pilate, now he's got a spiritual problem on his hands. And so he doesn't fully know what to do. He declares Jesus is innocent, but the crowds are unrelenting, he doesn't know what to do. So he finally goes to the last card that he's got in his deck and he thought, maybe I can appeal to pity, maybe I can beat him up so bad That maybe the crowds will feel so sorry that eventually they'll have mercy. They'll just cry, mercy. We can eventually let this man go. And so he sentences Jesus to be flogged. Flogging is such a heinous form of torture. What would happen in the ancient world is they would take a victim and typically, it was a pretty open space, and they had a tree stump, sometimes a stone, and it stood just over waist tall, and what would happen is they would place the victim's chest right on top of the stump, and they would take their arms, and they would fasten them to the ground, fully stretching out the victim's back. They used a weapon. It was called a cat of nine tails. It had nine simple strands, and on the end of each strand, there was a sharp object. Sometimes they used glass. Sometimes they used stone. They even used. Bones of animals, whatever they could use that was sharp, that's what made up this weapon. The challenge is you wouldn't have to whip a victim hard. What they would do is simply lay the whip on the victim's back and rake it away. And lay it on the back again and rake it away. It was so horrendous. That by Jewish law, they, they mandated you could not flog somebody more than 39 times. The law said no more than 40 minus one. But Jesus was not being flogged by the Jews. He was being flogged by the Romans who had no such law. History tells us that the majority of the victims never made it to the cross because they died during the flogging because skin would get ripped off one's back, muscles would get torn away. Oftentimes, when the prisoner would stand back up again, the internal organs would literally fall out their back. If you somehow survived, you would most certainly need a stretcher. And so Pilate takes Jesus, who could hardly stand on his own, who would have been unrecognizable to his closest friends, even his own mother. Pilate takes him out on that that same balcony and just simply says the words, behold the man. And it was almost like this demonic oppression came over the entire crowd that they just simply responded, crucify him. For what? For loving people like no one had ever loved? for offering grace to those who were marginalized, to pouring value into those who were forgotten, for teaching things like love your enemies and, and pray for those who persecute you. There is no one in the history of the world who had lived a more loving, grace-filled, beautiful life than the person of Jesus. So Pilate finally says, then let him be crucified, but his blood's on your hands, not mine. And Pilate goes back into his palace and washes his hands as though he can't get the blood off. The truth is, I hate this day. It was just a few hours later that Jesus was forced to carry the cross beam to the cross that he would soon be pinned to. It weighed about 60 pounds. And he would have to make the rugged track up this, this mountain to this place called Golgotha. It was a very visible place where they executed criminals. It was also known as the place of the skull. After all that Jesus had been through, it's not surprising that he didn't make it. It eventually physically buckled under the weight of that crossbeam and somebody was pulled out of the crowd to actually carry Jesus' cross on his behalf to the place of the skull. And when they got to the top of that hill, they laid Jesus down on this cross. And they more than likely took one single spike and they drove it through both of his feet, pinning it to the bottom of that cross. And they took another nine-inch spike and most likely they didn't go through the palm of his hand, most likely they went right through the two bones of one's wrist. One, so it could hold the weight of the body, but two, there's a nerve there that would send excruciating pain throughout the, the body of a victim. And they pinned his left hand to that tree, and pinned his right hand to that tree. And with outstretched arms of love, Jesus gave his life for you and me. But if you can believe it, the greatest sacrifice was actually still to come. The physical pain, and the physical sacrifice has been insurmountable, but the greatest pain was still to come. You see, the divine pair had a deal, and Jesus was going to be held personally responsible for every sin of all people, of all times, of all cultures, through all of human history. For all the hate, the racism, the violence, the divorce, the abuse, the prostitution, the, 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 the terrorist attacks, that Jesus was going to feel the weight of the responsibility and experience the penalty and the punishment of sins so that you and I could be set free. That The truth is, that was not Jesus' cross. The truth is, that was my cross. That was your cross. Jesus took on death so that you and I might take on life. Jesus was the only one that lived in the only way he could but died in the way that we really we should my friends, that's why they call this day good. I guess what I'm trying to say is this, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. I hate this day, but I love this day because on this day, God saved my soul. My friends, the greatest news in the world is that's not the end of the story. The greatest news in the world is though Jesus saw death on Friday, death could not hold our God down. The greatest news in the world is when it looked as though darkness had won, Jesus sprung from that grave. I say he he punched death in the face. And Jesus took on life so that you and I could take on life too. The greatest news in the world is that that today we remember, but my friends, next week we get to celebrate. Because the greatest news in the world is that, 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 that the end of the cross was no end at all, it was the beginning of a new life, of a new hope, of a second chance, of a new start. And my friends, next week we will celebrate the greatest celebration of the single greatest event in all of human history, the resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ. And next week, we will gather in unison with followers of Jesus all over the world. And my friends, right here at Central, we have planned in an experience. It is a celebration in epic proportion. When we know how to celebrate Easter and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, I promise we know how to celebrate right around here. And so here's the deal. Next week, come ready to celebrate. Come ready to embrace life. Come ready to embrace your second chance. Bring others with you as we get to celebrate the life The life giving nature of the person of Jesus. If I could invite you to stand to your feet, Uh, we're going to go out and just sing a song of praise to the one who made life possible for us. Let's give all the glory to him.